Smartcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Burden of Command podcast. Today, my guest is Mr. Sam uh, Schutte. Uh, Sam is the founder and CEO of Unstoppable Software. Uh, that is a company that uh, they develop and help their clients build systems to automate workflow and implement digital transformation. I'm sure we'll dive deep into that. Uh, and Sam is also the host of his own podcast, Unstoppable Talk, which covers the intersection of business, innovation, and technology. Uh, he, he does a couple of other extracurricular type things in the Cincinnati area, uh, but Unstoppable Software and the podcast Unstoppable Talk are probably the two things that you may have heard his name uh, for. So Sam, uh, thanks for being with me and my guest today. Yeah, thanks, Earl. Glad to be here. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, let's just go ahead and get you uh, started off where I start all my guests. The phrase burden of command, what does that mean to you? Yeah, it's interesting. So I guess coming from it, from my background, I, you know, I spent the first decade or so of my career as a software developer. And during that time, what I always wanted is I, is I wanted more ability to make decisions because what you learn is a, being a sort of a technical engineer type is you have all of the, uh, all of the responsibility and none of the authority, right? Mm -hmm. Um, meaning if a system goes wrong and, and something breaks or there's bugs in it, it's your problem, but you weren't the one that made the decision to build the system in the first place. And so for me, when I became an entrepreneur and started my own companies, and now that I'm really, you know, where the buck stops, um, to me, sometimes, the, the, you know, the if I had to think of that phrase, burden of command, um, it's that, you know, you do have the ultimate, decision-making ability, but you don't necessarily have all the information either. You know, just because you're in that position, a lot of times you're still, I mean, you know, you try to make intelligent decisions and educated guesses and, and so forth, but it's not like you uh, really have the answer. Um, and so I think sometimes, you know, that can kind of be the, the challenge of command maybe is another way to phrase it, that, uh, you know, you need to make these decisions with limited information and that they affect everyone in your organization. Uh, and the people in your organization look to you uh, and expect you to make good decisions. Um, and, and because your decisions affect their lives ultimately, right? right. Um, so I think that's kind of how I interpret it. Yeah, no, I mean, you, you said a lot there, and I really love that answer is because, you know, I mean, you're right. It's, it's one of the things I have a hard time uh, getting through some leaders' heads that I work with is, uh, you know, it, it's so much more 
uh, than just the four walls of your company, right? The decisions you make on a daily basis, people take those home with them. That affects their home life. That home life affects how they, in turn, work for you the next day. And, and it kind of uh, feeds into one another. If you treat them well, they'll have happier, healthier, generally, home lives and be more productive at work. And and so I like that that kind of holistic piece there at the end that, uh, you know, it's really just about treating people like people, right? Yeah, and I think particularly for for me and our company, you know, being that we employ software developers, right? I mean, that's the pr- primary people that that work on our team, and those are folks that you know you need them to be creative and motivated and, and like focused. It's very demanding, uh, you know, knowledge based job, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you have to kind of feed that person holistically. It's not something that they can come in and just you know punch buttons and succeed at. Right. right. Because of that artistic component. And, you know, people always say programming is a combination of of, uh, uh, you know, craftsmanship and, and, and art. Right. Um, or technology and art. And so that's not a job that, you know, they're going to succeed at if they're not inspired and motivated and all these things. Right. So right. Um, doing that effectively and in a way that builds their confidence is is a really, I think, really tricky uh you know, sort of uh, form of management. No, no, I, I agree. It's it's a it's a tough balancing act for for everyone. And uh, so you kind of touched on it a little bit uh, in the opening, uh, but share your your journey, if you will. How did you get into to software design, and then ultimately uh, decide to start your own company? And then if if you get time at the end. Uh, what led you to start your podcast? Sure. So I started out, uh, I, I kind of always had an interest in computers growing up. You know, when I was in junior high, it was sort of the very dawn of the dial-up era, uh, you know, with CompuServe and all those sort of things. And uh, I never really thought that it would be my career because I always had this interest in science and medicine and biology and such. But when I went off to college, um I sort of felt, you know, for whatever reason, more attracted to computers and technology. And that was at the real birth of the Internet. Right. Um, You know, and I think I was more I always thought I would be more involved in like a hardware networking type of world. But for whatever reason, got into programming and luckily ended up that I was, you know, because I actually changed my major from biology, ended up that I was at a college that was, you know, had a very good uh, computer science program. Um. And, you know, was very fortunate that when I came out was right during that dot-com boom where, uh, you know, I I think it was like, you know, September 10th or something after graduating in July or whatever. And I'm just kind of sitting around in Cincinnati in my parents' house. And I think my parents are like, you know, maybe you should think about getting a job, you know, <laughs> and sitting here unemployed for two months. And so I said, okay. And I put my resume out around 10 a.m. And by 2 p.m. I had a job, right? Mm. Because... That was, it was crazy. I mean, it was September 2000, you know? Um, So I did that for about um, maybe, I don't know, 10 years or so, something like that. Uh, You know, working for IT departments and startups. And and, and I was really fortunate to work for a lot of product development companies that were selling software like that was their product, right? As opposed to just, you know, all working in IT departments or something. did that for a while. And, and, you know, I think after I had a series of startups that I would, I'd be at a different startup for a year and then it would go belly up or get sold or bought or something. 
And after doing that for a while, I was like, you know, I, I think I can do this. Like, I, I, you know, I think it's something I want to do. And I had grown frustrated with that lack of, like I talked about, that lack of decision-making authority because I, was, I started to realize, like, the people making the decisions didn't really know what to do either <laughs> any <laughs> right. better than I did, right? It was everybody just guessing. Um, and so, um, you know, I had finished up a contract. This was, like, January of 08. Um, and at the time, you know, my wife was pregnant. I was in night school trying to get my MBA. My house was on the market uh, to be sold. And I thought, hey, you know, why not start a company, right? Right. <laughs> why don't we just throw another iron on the fire? Because you um, had nothing else going on in your life, right? Company yeah, sounded exactly. like a good thing to do. Exactly. And I'm sure my wife was a little bit like, really? This is <laughs> <laughs> this is the time we're going to do this? Right. Um, but really, you know, so that was 12 years ago, and, and we've been very fortunate to just, you know, have weathered a lot of ups and downs since then with changes in the economy and all this. And, um, and of course, coming out of that, that 2008 era was, was uh, you know, we, we got through all that. Um, and I guess basically, so to, can't answer to, the, to answer the sort of tail end of your question there, um, through, you know, probably about the last, say, six years or so, I've been very heavily active in content marketing, you know, on our blog and other places, and I've tried a lot of different avenues to get our get the message out, right? Because I think, you know, what you realize is that you have to have a lot of different channels, omni-channel type marketing, marketing to get enough leads in the door to, to sort, of, sort of stay fed. And when you're a business that's 12 years old, you're not necessarily just going to get enough, you know, leads through networking or referral word of mouth, right? Like, you, you know, you still get those, but you need more, right? Right. Um, and I think podcasting is interesting to me because, you know, it's this long form, in-depth, very personal content that people can listen to and they can really start to understand who you are as a person more than if they just read some blog post about that you wrote uh, that, you know, frankly, is anybody really going to sit there and read a thousand words, Right. <laughs> Um, and what's interesting about podcasts is something like 80% of podcast listeners listen to the whole episode, right? right. Um, so I kind of like, and I think it suits me well. I've been able to sort of pound out and grind out episodes much faster from podcasting than I was ever able to blog. Um, you know, partly just, I mean, I have some audio, audio recording background just because I used to have a band and all this sort of stuff, right? So I had the microphones anyway. Um and uh, I think, frankly, it's just easier for me to talk for an hour than it is to write for an hour, right? So right. <laughs> it just suits my personality, I guess. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's interesting that you got the, the audio because, you know, as soon as I started listening, I was like, man, this, this guy's got a great radio voice. So, so <laughs> I mean, and, and I, I love your podcast. I've, I've listened to, I haven't listened to every episode, but I've listened to a handful here and there, especially getting ready for this. And, and, and the one thing that I, I love, especially about your guests, like a, one of the first ones I listened to, uh, it's maybe an episode one or two, was a uh, it was a pastor who hmm. was using uh, Facebook Live, if I remember right, to essentially reach out to was it a third shift uh, cr- uh, crowd? Yeah, correct. Yeah, to kind of do like a Bible study th- to folks that otherwise struggled to make it. Yeah, and I'm listening to that, and this was a few weeks ago before, uh, you know, COVID-19 mm-hmm. essentially made that kind of a mandatory thing for churches. And I'm sitting here thinking, like, man, he he was a pioneer without even knowing it, right? 
Yeah, that's really interesting. So that's Russell Smith, who is a is a pastor at Covenant First Presbyterian in downtown Cincinnati. Good, very good friend of mine. Okay. Um, and uh, you know, I mean, this here it is. This I think a hundred and eighties. I don't know, or several. You know, very old church there in downtown Cincinnati. And what's interesting, you know, and what you pointed out there is, so he started this. He started this um, uh, night owl Bible study. He calls it at ten thirty right. p.m. Uh, on Wednesdays every week. And it was a way, because, you know, like myself, I couldn't make a Bible study downtown at noon. I mean, some people can, and that works great for them, do a lunchtime Bible study. Myself, I couldn't, you know, go downtown for that. Uh, And what's really interesting about it is, so now, because of all this COVID-19 stuff, as you said, he has shifted, and, and, and I actually watched it on Sunday. Um, I don't, I don't attend his church, um, but, so it actually was a great opportunity for me to see him preach. Um, but, uh, so they have of course shifted to all virtual services using even more technology for streaming. And I think what's really interesting is he has it down pat. Like they did a really good job with their service because during the service, they were able to cut away to pre-recorded, uh, Bible readings from people like sitting in their living room and stuff. So mm-hmm. he's he's familiarized himself enough in the last, say, you know, whatever it's been, nine months with the technology that, frankly, other churches that haven't been doing that at all that I've been watching, their their sort of presentation is not as good, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it was it was interesting to bring that up because I was I was going to compliment him, um, you know, for what I saw Sunday because I was like, wow, this is this is really high uh, professional grade uh, transmit you know transmissions. So yeah, uh, well, yeah. you know, and it was perfect perfect timing uh, as much as anything can be in this this time and era right now because I have a have a really good friend of mine who is a youth pastor uh, here in Indianapolis at the Blended Church. And all of a sudden, like when all this was happening, he starts firing me all these text messages like, how am we going to do this? How are we going to do this? I'm like, I got you. And I sent mm-hmm. him your podcast. And I said, listen to what this guy oh, nice. is doing. <laughs> do that. <laughs> oh, well, Russell will love to hear that. I'll have to tell him that. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and you know, to their credit, they have. They've started doing some other things. It's I think that's the, the thing. So I love tech. Uh, uh, but a lot of people are – uh, especially in in a certain demographic, I'll just put it that way, are kind of afraid of tech and automation because they always equate that with losing a job or losing touch with humanity and all that kind of good stuff. And that doesn't have to be that way, right? No, yeah, absolutely. And 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 it's interesting because if you look over the last you know more than a decade that we've been in business, because people often will say like, oh, I guess you guys have probably got you know replaced a lot of you know a lot of workers, you know, and it's like not really. I mean, most. Most of the time, uh, vast majority of the time, 95% of the time, um, the systems that we've built make people more effective, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, or eliminate the, the boring work. And if you eliminate the boring work, then you can work on the good stuff, right? right. The, the stuff that really requires you know, a human to do the work and is high value. And so, like for instance, we, we did a project a number of years ago that it was for a large elevator manufacturer. And at the time... They had something about they had about um, two hundred engineers that designed their designed their units and their you know hoistways and everything else, and probably about fifty percent of their time was spent on the really simple easy jobs because there were a lot of them right tons mm-hmm. and tons and tons of what they call two stop hydros or, or you know two story hydraulic elevators. They're not really that hard to design, but they take 
you know, a week or so of, uh, or whatever, a few days of work. Um, and there's, but there's really nothing interesting to it. Right. And, and so we built some software that automated that, took that off their plate and they didn't let go of anybody. They kept them all, but then they put them on the really big complex projects. Like, uh, they had actually won the contract for the, uh, freedom tower in New York. Mm. I mean, that had 20, you know, 35 elevators or something. Right. I mean, and, and they needed the manpower. Right. right. So, um, so it's kind of about, you know, making, uh, getting those efficiency gains, uh, so that you, you can better utilize people and not just, you know, replacing them. Well, right. And, and you know, and that's the thing where, and this is where I see a lot of companies that are going through change. Uh, are you familiar with Cotter's eight step change model? Uh, a little bit. Yeah. Okay. So for, for the listeners who aren't like, it's, it's basically eight steps as the name implies, Step one is increase urgency. Step two is build uh, build a guiding team. Step three is develop the vision. Step four is communicate for buy-in. And step five is empower action. What seems like a lot of folks just jump right in at like step five. They start taking action and they never do steps one through four. And that's where a lot of that mistrust comes in. Because if you don't know why, and I love what Sam said there because because I, I feel the same way about technologies. It should be about eliminating the boring, the mundane, and freeing up manpower to do the, the more important things. So, so I like the fact that, that that's kind of your, your guiding philosophy there, if you will. Yeah, I mean, because you know, like, we work a lot with manufacturers uh, mm-hmm. in the manufacturing space. And, you know, it's interesting, and I've, I've talked to customers and clients before about this, is, you know, when you compare uh, the cost of labor between, say, China and the United States, I mean, we're never, we're probably never going to beat that, right? It's right. very, very hard. And and what everybody sort of immediately will say is, yeah, but, you know, you kind of get what you pay for. And, and that's and that's to some degree true, right? Um you know, the, the quality of labor for $8 an hour is not the same as what you get for $50 an hour. Right. Um, but, you know, if we can produce, you know, so, you know, if you have, um, let's say it's $40 an hour and, and five people at $8 an hour. So, you know, you have to equal the output of five people, right, to, mm-hmm. to make that math work. Well, what if we can triple the efficiency of the $40 an hour person, you know? So now it's still a better deal. To, to do it here in the States, right? right? And so I think that's where you see, you know, robotics and, and 3D printing and all these things is all about making that, uh, that, that investment in the sort of, uh, you know, onshore labor more, more efficient and higher output um, so that, uh, you know, that, that becomes our real advantage. Um, because I don't think that those, you know, I don't necessarily think that some of these other countries are going to invest as heavily in some of the software systems or that the people are going to be trained in them. Um, you know, I, I had a guest I interviewed uh, a little while ago in a podcast that talked about, you know, in China, well, in the United States here in car factories, you know, we have robots that pick up the car frame and move them into position and the welding robots come in. In China, they just have people pick up the car frame and put it there because they just mm. have teams of like 10 guys carrying the things around, right? right? Or whatever. Because why would they build a robot for that, you know? Um, but I think that can be our little bit of our competitive advantage, I guess. Yeah, no. And and again, it's, it's, it's great. And it's, uh, you know, and and if an organization is messaging it right, 
they generate the buy-in, they get people on board, you get them excited about those opportunities for growth and you give them a better skill set at the end. Uh, you know, using your example, the, the sad thing about those Chinese workers is, is manual labor is pretty much all they're ever going to know doing it the hard way. Whereas, uh, you know, if you just shift over to, uh, to Japan, uh, you know, I had, uh, due to some other work connections, I had the pleasure of touring the Subaru plant over in uh, Lafayette, mm-hmm. Indiana. And it was just amazing the, the difference in philosophy. They had the robots and stuff there too, but I, I love to share this, this story because uh, we're walking through and, and, and getting a tour and there's this, this very pleasant Japanese sounding type music mm-hmm. starts playing. And I asked the lady giving us the tour, I'm like, what does that mean? It's like, oh, something's wrong. <laughs> like what you know because when most people envision a plant and something's wrong they got the big red siren and, and the yeah. rah, rah, this very harsh sound and what i loved about it was she she starts she got happy about it and she starts oh yeah we do all of this research on you know that that so that harsh sound causes people to their anxiety to spike which causes them to make bad decisions which makes a, a usually an easily fixed problem worse because mm-hmm. of a bad decision. If we give them a gentle reminder, they stay cool, calm, and collected, and they're able to fix the equipment and get it back up and running. And like, and, and she was like, it takes them like 10% of the time that it normally would. Hmm. And I'm like, That's just such a great use of like paying attention to your people, using you know some technology uh, and, and science to make a workplace better, right? Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, I, I think there's a lot of interesting studies around like creating high performance teams and creating those sort of high output workplaces. And you do have to take psychology uh, into account, you know, and, and uh, it, it's definitely a part of it. I mean, our like our workforce is all work from home, uh, you know, uh, remote development teams, which is particularly handy kind of in this, uh, you know, COVID-19 sort of environment because it really doesn't change anything for us. Right. Right. Um, and a big part of that, uh, I mean, you know, there's a part of it that is sort of the ability to find talent when we need it, where we need it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also, or, or rather, regardless of where it is, but it's also just that those are the environments, you know, removing the stress of a commute, removing the hassle of sitting in cubicles and all these things that people sort of force on developers usually or any kind of workers um, just creates a, a sort of more focused work environment, you know, and now we don't have, uh, you know, maybe we should look into, you know, that kind of music playing or something when, <laughs> when something goes wrong. But, but I think it's because of psychology, right? It's not, um, you know, I mean, that's what drives that. Right. Yeah, no, exactly. And, and so being an organization uh, that is already built around kind of a telework uh, kind of model, uh, it's got to be an interesting perspective uh, for you to watch everything that's going on right now where some organizations are scrambling to uh, to set that up. And like you said, you're already kind of in place. But do you think, and, and this is me asking you for your kind of bold prediction, that once we get on the other side of this COVID-19, do you think those, those telework setups are going to stick around or do you think we'll try to revert right back to normal? Yeah, excellent question. And I've, and I've had this discussion with some folks recently, um, you know, frankly, a little bit, uh, uh, maybe selfishly, it's sort of like, geez, is our, is everybody discovering our secret sauce, right? right. Um, you know, we've, 
we've been such uh, we've been so successful at sort of creating high high output remote teams. Um, now everybody sort of has to learn that. Um, and, and I guess first I'll say it, it is really interesting how um, you know everybody's sort of discovering things like Zoom, and it's like we've been using Zoom for two years, you know, <laughs> right? Um, and um, before that, we used GoToMeeting for ten years, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I do think that. I was telling a friend recently is, you know, I think that on the other side of this, there may be some uh, companies that look at it and say like, you know, this didn't really hurt us. Um, why are we paying so much for so much for all this office space? You know, right. um, why are we paying, uh, you know, like for instance, uh, a, a great example is a, a friend of mine travels week in, week out, one of those sort of positions where he flies to Texas from Cincinnati every single week. Um, probably, I don't know, what does that cost per week? Thousands, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, you, you know, in hotels and airfare and everything else. So he's been working at home for whatever this entire period because they, they stopped all travel. And has that has that affected success? You know, and, and I think if they look back on it and say, wow, this was fine, actually. I mean, that could save them probably, you know, in 80, 70, $80,000 a year in expenses potentially yeah. um, for somebody like that. So, um, you know, I think that, I think there's definitely potential there. It, what's, what's interesting though, is that, uh, a lot of our customers are manufacturers, um, probably about at this point, probably about 50%. And that's a little harder because you can't manufacture things at home all the time, uh, or, or really at all. And so how do you have your management and your engineers and your support and your QA and everybody working from home, but have your fabricators and your welders and your, you know, your chemical mixers or whatever the role is working at the plant. Um, how do you bridge that gap? And I think that's been a real struggle because they just, you know, and so they've had to figure out things like, because of course all this social, social distancing coming into play too. Uh, you know, they've had to figure things out like, well, only one person at a time is allowed back in, you know, fab shop A or something, right? right. Um, so I think because of that, some of those companies are, are probably not going to stick with it. Um, but it, it'll be interesting to see um, if there are certain roles that they decide longer term could work at home. Um, you know, if they don't interface with manufacturing somehow or, you know, I don't know. Yeah, well, I mean, and you brought up some great points there because, like, in, in, in my space with uh, leadership development and, you know, there's – that has very much traditionally been a – somebody has a conference, you go speak at the conference, you have some social interactions there, you mm-hmm. that face-to-face, read the room, that sort of thing. And so a lot of people are kind of struggling uh, with that and, and struggled very early on, you know, at, but some of my friends who are killing it have adopted – much like the the uh, pastors we talked about earlier, have kind of adopted doing more Facebook Live, do more live podcasting, do more streaming type stuff to, to mm-hmm. try as much as possible to keep that social uh, human interaction. But again, I think that's always kind of that thin line with tech. And what you're saying is how much can you replace one-to-one face-to-face with technology? Yeah, and it's interesting because, I mean, you, you know, something that you've seen a lot, I'm sure you've seen a lot, is all the whole virtual conferences and virtual symposiums and stuff that, you know, there's platforms for that out there, like Hey Summit and some others I've seen, right? Mm-hmm. Um, 
And the problem with that is always, like you said, the human connection. How do you read the room when you're just talking to a camera? Um, and so I think there's this trade-off between like, because what, what the good part about that is the scalability. I mean, you could talk to a million people as long right. as the platform supported it. And so, you know, if you, if you figure out, let's say you're trying to sell a book or something, um, you know, if you look at the conversion rate and say, well, you know, I, I, I lose some sales because I'm not making the personal connection, but then I, I'm able to get 10 times as many people in the virtual room. Maybe you make it up, you know, may, maybe it does work out. Um, it, it's hard to say. I mean, I, I do think, you know, um, there are certain professions, uh, you know, coaching, consulting, certainly any kind of medical stuff where any kind of therapy, stuff like that, you know, where having a face-to-face one-on-one seems like it's important. Um, but I think that, you know, I mean, certainly in the medical space right now, a lot of people are learning that, you know, it's not so bad for me to talk over a video camera to my doctor. It works out. You right. Know? Um, you know, we had an appointment on uh, Tuesday for my son with his doctor and it was fine, you know, so I'll, I, it, given the choice, I would probably never go to a doctor's office again. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know? yeah, I mean, and, and that's a great example because, uh, you know, we're we're recording on April 6th here just for context for the listeners. But, you know, two weeks ago, maybe even a week ago, if you said the word telehealth, people would look at you like you were, what the heck is that? Now, yeah. like you said, everybody is kind of doing telehealth. Uh, yeah, so. and, and, and it's it's been something that the industry has been wanting to get into for a long time. I mean, I, we have a number of clients in the medical space, and for probably three years now, they've they've talked about, looked at, and, but you know, there just wasn't really the demand. Um, so it is interesting, and that, and that's kind of the fascinating thing that I'd say, you know, for anybody sort of looking to start a business or wanting to kind of. Uh, you know, maybe they, for instance, a good friend of mine got laid off last week and immediately he's like, all right, I'm starting my own business. Now's the time, right? Yeah. This is the, this is the kick in the pants to do it. Um, you know, these type of like financial crunches and economic crashes, they always drive innovation and they birth companies. I mean, there was, I read a little while ago, if you look at, if you look back over time, you know, the year and the time when Microsoft, IBM, Hewlett Packard, all these you know, scions of tech, when they were founded, it was always during some extreme recession or downturn, or at least some minor recession, I guess. Um, and I think there's a connection there, you know. So somewhere, somebody right now, uh, the next billionaire who right now is in his parents' basement making th- an amazing telehealth platform that nobody would have used six months ago uh, is working away, you know, burning the midnight oil, Right. And when we come out of this and all of a sudden 50% of patients want to keep doing telehealth, maybe that, you know, that could be a billion dollar company no one's ever heard of. Yep. Um, and that's encouraging, right? No, it, it is. And I, I kind of want to uh, segue into the, the entrepreneurship thing here in just a second. But we're talking about all these these uh, positive trends that are going on. As somebody who's in kind of the software development space, uh, you know, I'm sure you've seen this. What is this new Fed? Uh, Zoom bombing. Uh, mm-hmm. how can how can organizations better safeguard themselves from kind of the, the negative side of using some of this software like Zoom bombing? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, I, I think part of it is, um, you know, really to take the time to familiarize yourself with the security options for any tools you're using. Um, you know, people tend to just start using something and they don't really read the manual, they don't read the help pages. You know, I think, you know, 
take the step of looking up the security instructions. Uh, you know, if, if you look at uh, Zoom bombing in particular, which, you know, for instance, my wife's a teacher, so they started using Zoom and already they've had people uh, interrupting with all sorts of offensive content and, and, mm. and stuff, right? Well, so what does Zoom say? Zoom says, well, put a password on the meeting and use the waiting room technology or waiting room feature. And so, of course, the password is you have to have the password to get in. And the waiting room is the host has to click admit to everyone who asks to join the meeting. And if you and if I see someone's name coming in, I don't know who they are. I just say deny and they can't come in. Okay. well, so that solves the Zoom bombing. Those features have always been there. They've had them for at least the last year. Um, Nobody had them turned on. Right. Right. And so it's kind of like. Uh, driving your car around at night with no headlights on. You have headlights in your car. You just have to actually turn them on. Yeah. Um, and and so I think that's that's one, you know, key thing is is you have to have an eye towards that. Um, you know, in the same with you know Google Drive, Dropbox, whatever. I mean, if you use Dropbox with a simple password of your mom's name, that's extremely risky because it can be cracked in under a minute. Right. You know. Yeah, no, I I, I actually I, I like that piece of advice, and it's simple, and it's it's actually not something I'd even really consider. But you, you're right, you know, and it, I kind of chuckled when you said that because I'm I'm guilty, you know, is I get a new piece of software and it's like ah, I'll figure this thing out on the fly, and then when things go crazy, the first place I turn is YouTube University, and turns out it was like this very simple thing that if I'd taken five seconds to read, I, I could have done on my own very easily. Yeah, and and I'm guilty of that too. I think it's because you know, I mean, you get something new and you're in a hurry, you want to try it out, um, but you just have to kind of pause, take a step, and think. Wait a minute, um, what are the risks, and and how can this be secure? And and I mean, pretty much every product on the web has some page or guide or something about security. Uh, you know how to secure that. Um, you know what parts of it are secure. I mean, I, I think people didn't realize with with Zoom, for instance, how easy it is to guess a meeting number. I mean, it's a nine digit number, but I mean, you could just spend all day typing in nine digit numbers, and and with enough people using it, stumble upon meetings that you can just hop in. I mean, that's sure. what's happening. You know, so um, yeah, it's it's sort of just about doing your due diligence, I guess. Mm, no, I like that. Okay, so. The entrepreneur piece, because uh, uh, as we're kind of discussing in a pre-show work up there, I have a fair amount of of listeners who are are veterans, and also the environment, as you mentioned, it's ripe for for people who are uh, you know laid off, uh, teleworking mainly from home uh, to to get the entrepreneurial bug. As somebody who's been down that road, what advice would you have for those people who are thinking about getting into the entrepreneur game? That's a good question. Um, so I guess there's a couple things. I mean, number one is there's different types of businesses that are easier or harder to start, right? Right. Um, if what you want to do is to get into a company that's extremely capital intensive, um, that can be very hard to do when you're, you know, particularly like if you've just been laid off or something, or maybe you've, you've always just had some other job. Um, and you, you know, you don't have access to million dollars of capital. Um, you know, I think even like Elon Musk said, like he would not recommend anyone start a rocket company. <laughs> like it's a very, it's a very bad idea, you know? Uh, and, uh, and, and he, the only reason he has survived is because he happened to have access to billions in capital. Um, so I think, 
you know, if you look at uh, types of businesses that are easier to start, coaching, consulting, you know, basically do the doing the stuff that you're already good at, you know, that and, and starting out as a one man company is, is not a bad thing. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I have a friend who, uh, like I mentioned, is starting a company, um, and you know, he's kind of all, he's you know already looking at getting loans and and thinking about exit strategy. And I kind of said, well, sl- slow down, you know. This is just you right now, and and that's okay. That you don't have to day one plan to go out and hire ten people. Um, you know, there's a lot to prove with your business model. Prove out before you do that, um, because what you don't want to do, of course, is hire ten people and realize, well, nobody buys this stuff. Mm. You know, um, th- there is no market for it, and and then you have a major problem. Um, so I think one thing is, you know, just make it make it as easy as yourself on yourself as possible. You know, if you have been a because uh, literally people have consulting companies about everything, everything. Right. Um, you know, I, I know a, a, a guy who his consulting company is helping dentists market their services. I mean, it's super niche. Right. <laughs> okay. um, how does he know about that? He worked with one dentist. And he learned it from one customer, right? And so I think that that ties into my second piece of advice, which is just go out and get one customer, right? Get you know, getting your first customer is the hardest part. That's and that's it. I mean, for me, uh, when I started my company, I mean, I had a friend who said, "Hey, you know, why don't you come over and do some stuff with us?" And that led to the birth of the company. It led to me creating it. Um, And you know, I mean, for the first probably two years, that was my only customer. Um, but that's fine. You know, you have to start somewhere. And so I, and I think most people, if they have some skill or some trade can reach out, uh, and, and to their friends and family and find somebody that will hire them for something. Um, you know, a, a, a friend of mine, his son happened, he, his friend, uh, his son is a, a server in restaurants. Um, and of course has been laid off as a result of all this. And he said, okay, that's it. It's time to start my own thing. Well, he happens to be really good at leather work. Right. Mm. And you think leather work. What, what do we what does that even mean? <laughs> you know, <laughs> and in today's do people still do that. That's like 18th century. Well, he's been making uh, these little leather keychains that are sort of the, uh, uh, you know, the plague mask style, you know, like from the whatever, which is sort of a, a I guess, a funny jokey thing now, I suppose, or something. Right. So he's been making these keychains and they're selling them for like thirty five dollars a piece. Right. Mm. Um. And he sold out. He sold like 50 of them, you know. So there you go. He found he found his first, you know, five or ten people to buy him from friends and family, and, and now he's on his way. So, um, so you know, th- that, those are at least kind of off the top of my head some advice is, you know, make it easier on yourself by trying to do what you're already good at uh, and, you know, just focus on finding your first customer, and the rest of it will be, you know, hopefully kind of downhill from there. Well, I mean, and I think that that is great advice because, you know, you said everybody sits around trying to to think of that next million or billion dollar idea. But I mean, everybody like uh, if you've ever heard Mark Cuban talk about how he got started, his first job was selling uh, selling trash bags door to door. You know, and like you said, it, it just takes that one. And I also like what he says, if you can sell, you're never unemployed the rest of your life because yeah. everybody always has need to sell. So uh, well, I'll I, go ahead. Well, I just say, and, 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 you know, also like, um, you know, like you said, uh, you have to be willing to get a lot of no's mm-hmm. in that, in that effort to get your first customer. I mean, 
you know, uh, I think Mark Cuban talks about it. Like he got shut down a lot, right? right. When, he, when he's selling something like that. And even like, I love the story about Ross Perot, you know, Ross Perot convinced some company to sell him a used mainframe, something like that. <clears throat> and he went around and, and did 500 sales pitches. That's a lot of sales meetings, right? Yeah. And they all said no, all through 499 and then the 500th said yes. And that was his first customer, you know? Um, I mean, that's, I've never been told no 500 times. So, I mean, that's a tremendous amount of, uh, you know, uh, tenacity, right? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, and there's all those, there's all those stories that that are like that. And uh, Mm -hmm. yeah, the perseverance piece is, is huge. So, uh, you know, I, I, I like everything you just gave. I think you, you just gave a crash course in uh, at least basic entrepreneurship. I like that. Uh, so kind of building on what we've been talking about already, what type of software, I'm going to give you a, kind of a softball here, I hope, <laughs> what type of software or virtual technology is out there to help entrepreneurs uh, get going? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, there's some very basic things if you're starting out that, uh, you know, you, you want to try to get into place. I mean, you know, of course people want to get a website. And so I think something like WordPress is something that you can very easily develop a, word, a website in, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, from there, it kind of depends on because people start using a lot of tools as sort of like stop gaps in the meantime. So you start using like Excel and things, you know, maybe you're doing, you know, if you're, if you're a consultant billing per hour, you're going to make timesheets, right? Right. Um, you know, very quickly doing that in Excel becomes painful. So there's a great tool called Harvest that we've used a lot to track our time and stuff like that. Um, you know, and of course the other one that a lot of people um, recommend is to get a CRM in place. Um, and, and people, a lot of people think that costs, you know, that can cost thousands of dollars. There's great CRMs that are 10 bucks a month. Now, for um, the people that don't know, what is a CRM? So it's a, CRM stands for customer relationship management, but it's really, you know, sales and lead prospecting, mm-hmm. uh, tracking, I guess, tracking and storage. So, you know, who are my prospects out there? What are my opportunities with them? When did I last talk to my customer? Because obviously, you know, if you, if you think back to our example, Ross Perot, if he's, tr- you know, you, you can't track 500 opportunities on paper. Um, and, and, you know, you're, you're going to have multiple calls and meetings with those people. So, and, and I think, you know, it, it sort of evolves. So there's some tools you can get off the shelf to solve those problems really early. I know other companies, though, that, partic- you know, sort of in their particular niche will say, look, in order for us to succeed at this, we need to build some system because it doesn't exist. Um, and, and so we work with clients like that because, you know, they need something written custom, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes it's something that, you know, they want to be able to present or sell or, or you know, get customers um, via some kind of really unique web, in, uh, web interface, right? So whatever's out there off the shelf doesn't work because I need people to come and look at my you know, my, uh, services in a different way. Right. right. Um, and so it kind of depends, um, what you're doing, how much, uh, you need to go into that. But I think it's something that you want to try to solve early and not just try to rely on what, uh, Excel sheets and so forth forever. Um, because then you end up eating so much of your time up just doing busy work. Right. Yeah. And, and if you have trouble finding any of these services, 
just make yourself a LinkedIn profile and they will flock to you. Yes, true. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think I yeah. probably get 30 or 40 or more a day just, just for that, that type of thing. So absolutely. Uh, yeah. So Yeah. And I, and I think at the same time, like, you know, the, the, on that note, you know, like a big thing you get on LinkedIn nowadays, and, and I think it's something that people have to sort of be cognizant of when they're starting a business is, is you know, you can't outsource everything, right? Um, there's all, I'm sure you've gotten these. There's all these people that say, we will do all the selling for you. We will do all the appointment setting. You know, you pay us, we will get all the leads, all the appointments, and then you'll just close and it's easy. Right. It doesn't, doesn't work that way. Doesn't Never. work that way, you know? Never. Um, you can't you can't outsource the most important part of your business, which is your ability to connect to people and, and you know describe a solution and give them them hope that it's their, the right solution for them. You know, right? Um, so, yeah, no, that's that's sound solid advice. I, I, I like that. So, well, Sam, look, we're we're coming up on about forty five minutes or so here, so I want to uh, work to close this out for you. Um, it's been a great conversation. I really, really appreciate your time and, and your insight. Um, but sure. I always like to start the closeout process with this question. Is there anything that we haven't discussed that you'd like to, uh, you'd like to touch on? Um, I guess not that I can think of. I think we covered a lot of ground. I mean, it's been a great conversation. Certainly appreciate the, the talk with you as well. And, uh, I think, you know, uh, I would just say during these challenging times, we've got to we've got to innovate and um, think of new ideas and, and, you know, any new markets and new businesses that we get into are going to require new technologies. Right. Right. Um, and that's going to require people to get up to speed with a lot of new stuff. So um, certainly if anybody has any questions or things they're struggling with, I'm, you know, happy to speak to any of your listeners about them uh, anytime. All right. And uh, how can they get a hold of you? Uh, so the easiest way would probably go to our website. It's just unstoppablesoftware.com. Um, my email address is just shooty at unstoppablesoftware.com. That's S-C-H-U-T-T-E. Um, those are probably the two easiest ways. Okay. And I'll, uh, in the show notes, I'll make sure I have those links in there. And uh, then your social media contacts, I'll put those in there so people can can get in touch with you that way as, as well. Sure. Uh, Yeah. So, I mean, again, thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate it. Uh, Listeners, thank you for uh, spending spending the last 45 minutes or so of your time with us. Uh, We both really appreciate it. Hope you got something out of it. Uh, You'll have Sam's contact info to reach out to him if you so wish. Uh, If you want to reach out to me, just burden.command at gmail.com. Story ideas, guest ideas, topics you'd like me to touch on, uh, just reach out there and, and we'll try to make those happen for you. Um, be sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show. Help us keep growing. Uh, and, you know, again, stay safe, stay healthy, stay socially distant as long as, uh, as long as this thing is still around. And I look forward to speaking with you again in the next episode. Miles, are you ready to record our promo for season two of the Wanna Bet podcast? David, have you ever seen a grown man naked? Miles, we're not here to quote lines from Airplane. We're here to tell people that season two starts August 18th. But I like Airplane. I know you do, but Wanna Bet is a sports betting podcast. Each week we bet $1,000 on the NFL teams and games that we love. Well, that sounds like fun. It is fun. And last year you picked over 60% of your games correctly. How'd you do? We're not talking about that. We are telling people that they can find us every Friday. No more movie quotes. Roger, Roger.
Electricast. Hey there, I'm DC. I host the Rock Podcast. Back to the arena, the interviews. It's about a 30-minute podcast where I talk one-on-one with a band who has released new music. You can find us on all the best podcast sites like Spotify, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, and more. If you're a rock fan like me, subscribe today to Back to the Arena, the interview. Electric Acid. Electric Acid.